This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. This is Rianne Campbell from Stories of Win. Today, I am interviewing Dr. Mike Fox, who's an assistant professor at Penn State University's College of Medicine at Hershey. And she is in the Department of Anesthesiology and Periodic Medicine, as well as appointed in the Department of Pharmacology. And so thank you so much for joining me today. Yes, thank you for inviting me. Cool. Uh, so we usually just get started by asking you, you know, what made you first get to get interested in science? So um, I've sort of always been uh, a little bit of a nerd. <laughs> um, so like basically starting when I was a kid, I just always wanted to know how everything worked. Um, and so I had a I had a neighbor who lived down the street that actually really helped me Uh, discover my interest in science um, somewhat serendipitously. Uh, So first, uh, her mom was a histology technician at the hospital. Mm -hmm. And one day she brought us to work and she showed us all these wet specimens and she showed (laughs) us all these these tissue slides. I was like, man, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Um, And then that neighbor also happened to have a semi-feral cat colony uh, that they that they fed, um, and the the thing you know sometimes I would feed the cats when when they were on vacation, and um, after I would feed them they would come and like leave me a little presents, and uh, you know this is mostly in the form of like a half eaten bird, a half eaten squirrel, uh, very very sweet, um, and so I can remember doing these sort of backyard dissections um, mm-hmm. because this like animal was you know, already uh, taken out by the cat. And this was a really cool opportunity to sort of get to understand all of the different parts um, of, of the animal. And um, I can just really remember being incredibly fascinated by just how alien everything looked. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and and so, uh, you know, I really, I really took that, that interest in like, taking things apart, putting them back together. How do they work? Um, and I studied chemistry and biology in college. Um, and then I got really lucky and ended up in a research lab as an undergraduate. Um, Great. And so, you know, it had really nothing to do with, with these um, small gifts from cats. It was a, <laughs> it was a lab. Um, focused on like water treatment so like novel ways to decontaminate water and and deal with toxins cool um which was yeah very very orthogonal to my to my early interests but i was really excited to um to get to be in in a lab and and get to be seeing how things worked and and asking questions like that yeah yeah well kind of I guess as a research assistant, those kinds of labs, do you like test the water samples? You go and get water samples? Is that so? So um, the lab was funded by this like bioterrorism defense grant. Wow. <laughs> um, and so we were really worried about 
um, where someone was really worried about right. <laughs> um, uh, basically like nerve agents and, and neurotoxins and also just like dry cleaning chemicals. Mm. Um, and so we made these model systems um, basically where, you know, we either had these model cells um, like in the form of liposomes or, or something like that, or we used um, Vibrio fisheri, which is like not Vibrio cholera. It's it's benign, uh, but it, a readout of its of the health is uh, is bioluminescence. Mm-hmm. And so you can use these model systems and like you know apply your novel water treatment strategies and then dump them on this glowing bacteria. Like, does it are they still healthy? Uh, you know, cool. have we removed the toxin from from the water? which, you know, I got all of my, my wet lab skills that way, learned, learned how to pipette yeah. and make buffers and, and all of that, all of that sort of stuff. That's great. Is that, so with like the potential of nerve agents, is that where the interest in neurobiology came in or how did that? Yeah. About? So, um, it's sort of two, two things kind of happened, um, around the same time. So I was working on this, um, molecule called valenomycin, which Mm -hmm. is the potassium ionophore. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I was doing was measuring, um, in a model cell system, if we had destroyed the valenomycin, then it would no longer be able to collapse a membrane potential. And so I had these little model cells I was like, oh, almost neurons, you know, <laughs> almost neurons. Uh, this fluorescent reporter dye that was basically reporting, like, do you have a membrane potential or not? Mm. Um, and then around the same time, I was reading an issue of chemical and engineering news. It was this like American Chemical Society publication that I was subscribed to. Um, <laughs> and uh, on the cover, was um, were these dopamine transients mm-hmm. um, as measured by voltammetry mm-hmm. and it was like oh my god I, I just like put the pieces together um and and sort of thought like man this is the the final frontier like the the ultimate thing that we don't understand is is the brain and man I really want to do that <laughs> and um so like that's that's what I did I went to graduate school um to learn voltammetry Wow. <laughs> to, to use that like weird bioanalytical skill set um, and, you know, model systems and, and all of that stuff uh, to, to, yeah, look at, look at monoamines in, in the brain. And I just, I, I was hooked. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So, so you started your PhD and uh, you were at uh, UNC, University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Um, so you mentioned, you know, some of the kind of tools and broadly kind of the right catecholamines that you were studying. Um, what kind of was your dissertation work focused on? Yeah, so my dissertation work um, was focused on norepinephrine primarily, um, and the adaptations that happen in basically models of, of stress and models of opioid dependence. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we know that there's a lot of overlap between stressful situations and people developing substance use disorders. Um, and I got really interested in that um, because I can remember, so uh, like a couple of things happened. Um, I had a friend who had done two tours in Iraq mm-hmm. and injured his back and had a, a very intense uh, 
hydrocodone sort of situation, yeah. uh, a lot of mental health issues, a lot of PTSD. Um, and then I had also, uh, in the early 2000s, in I was living in Florida, and the sort of prescription opioid epidemic yeah. like really hit my community um, really hard. And like I had, I knew people that like had to go to, to like rehab programs, um, yeah. basically. And it was, uh, it was really striking how six months ago, this is, this is my friend, we're, we're going to the beach, we're listening to records, we're uh, you know, shooting off fireworks, and, and the next, like, they're snorting Vicodin on the kitchen yep. counter. <laughs> yep, yep. No, so unfortunately, uh, an experience I think a lot of people can relate to seeing or being yeah. a part of or um, knowing somebody, but yeah, definitely. I mean, it makes sense. So why to have that interest based off of these kind of experiences. <laughs> um, so at your uh, PhD lab, I guess, what was kind of the lab like? What was the, how did you feel like, I mean, you were really prolific in uh, your publications and all of the projects you were working on. Um, how did you feel you were kind of supported as a woman in science or how you operated as being a woman in science uh, in your graduate work? Yeah, so um, there there were good experiences and bad experiences. I of mean, course. Like everybody's PhD, right? not special in that regard. <laughs> um, but the the lab that I did my PhD in, um, uh, Mark Whiteman was my PI and he retired uh, shortly after I shortly after I defended um, mm -hmm. about a year afterwards. And so uh, it, there was a very old boys kind of attitude sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, which I always had a really good relationship with Mark. We very much saw eye to eye, um, but that was not always the case with other people in his mm -hmm. lab. Um, and it, thankfully that was really mitigated by uh, a very early mentor that I had. So when I joined Mark's lab, um, I worked with Zoe McElliott who's um, who's professor at, at UNC Chapel Hill now. Um, and so she was a really important, um, she was also the first like female mentor right. I had had really in science. You know, I had all these, all these PIs that, that were men. Um, and so, you know, that, that was really helpful. There were yeah. quite a few women in the lab that, um, that helped mitigate some of that old boys club yeah type of attitude but you know it did mean that um you know whenever i had something controversial put that in air quotes <laughs> a, a finding that like no one wanted to believe because it was perhaps counter to what someone had showed 25 years ago <laughs> it meant that i had to work extra hard hmm. to like advocate for those findings and be like i, I promise i'm not making it up I, I promise, like, you don't have to take this person's PhD away. I, yeah. Like, if 20 years have happened, our technology is better, our methods yeah. are better, and, like, surprise, here's an unexpected thing. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, that's great that you had, you know, um, a mentor uh, to be able to talk with. And Zoe, it sounds, you know, I think 
I know from like my experiences with women um, neuroscientists, like really helpful to kind of have this someone to lean on and go to when you're kind of overwhelmed or uh, feeling like, is this just me in a setting? Um, but that's great that you had someone. Um, and so I guess then you now then transition into your postdoc and you um, uh, kind of chose Mary Kay Lobo's lab. How did that kind of go about? So um, I had all of the ability to measure the neurotransmitters and the circuits. Um, and I was always really interested in sort of the molecular mechanisms upstream and downstream of those altered neurotransmitters. And it was something that I always wanted to do in Mark's lab. Um, but like, it turns out it's really hard to do molecular biology in an analytical chemistry lab, uh, <laughs> a big surprise. <laughs> um, and, and so I was really interested in, in getting a new a new set of tools so mm -hmm. that I could really look at the whole picture um, down from from the smallest level um, to to the um, to the sort of whole animal level. And I had also really wanted to. Um, so I worked with rats all in graduate school and rats are great, um, but they're big. They're expensive to house, yeah. <laughs> and when they bite you because they're stressed, yeah. um, it hurts a lot. <laughs> yeah. So I was, I was, I was also really looking to get some um, some mouse experience and and get to use some of those really cool transgenic tools. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And so, um, what I know you had a bunch of different projects um, in the Lobo Lab, but uh, I guess what was kind of maybe your main projects or main kind of uh, overall themes of your projects that you uh, studied there? Sure. So the when I first joined Mary Kay's lab, um, I was working in a chronic stress model, uh, basically looking at dendritic remodeling of specific neurons in the brain after stress. Um, and so we had this really nice, elegant story about um, dopamine receptor D1 neurons showing this dendritic atrophy and chronic stress, dopamine receptor D2 neurons showing this increased spine density. Um, and, and this was all well and good, um, but one of the things that's like my primary interest is how does this interface with, um, with substance use and, and opioids. And so um, what I did is I took all of the tools that I used in that, um, chronic stress project, and I just applied them to opioids. Um, and so I can remember several years ago before everyone was talking about fentanyl, it's like, mm -hmm. man, this is killing people. Uh, we gotta know what's, we gotta know what's going on. Um, and so that like primary project was um, basically looking at dendritic atrophy of, of these different neuron subtypes in the context of um, exposure and abstinence from, from fentanyl and how that sort of relates to the stress-like behaviors that you get with, um, with opioid dependence, opioid withdrawal, opioid abstinence. And you know what was really interesting is that the, the neurons looked the same between the two conditions, uh, but the molecular mechanisms were completely different. Mm. which is is amazing and yeah. sometimes frustrating yeah <laughs> you know you really wanted it to be what you already had all these viral vectors for and pharmacology yeah. for um, but you know it's a really cool opportunity to look at these sort of parallel ways that yeah. um, that you get to the same 
that you get to the same, uh, you know, end, end result. Yeah, yeah, no, that's super interesting. It's, you know, it speaks to needing therapeutics for specific substance use disorders, specific psychiatric disorders, um, even if it manifests in a similar cellular, cellular kind of outcome and also a kind of behavioral outcome, I guess, too. Yeah. Um, so I guess um, you kind of focused on different molecules in those projects. Um, um, can you speak a little bit about like what the what maybe like the specific fentanyl molecule was that you found uh, that was causing these changes versus then the stress one? Yeah, sure. So um, in the stress context, which unfortunately was conducted only in males, mm -hmm. um, the, the stress context was really mediated by this, uh, this GTPase uh, called Rho-A, which is a negative regulator of dendritic complexity. And so we were able to manipulate Rho-A expression with viral vectors and, and also um, sort of reverse the dendritic atrophy with uh, a compound targeting its downstream effector, Rho kinase, mm -hmm. which is really cool, um, especially because this these Rho kinase inhibitors are approved for treating some eyeball physiology right. disorder. <laughs> I can't cool. remember which one it is. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, you know, it's a it's a really it's a really nice thing to to think about this this pathway forward. Yeah. Um, for, for sort of restoring the, the brain after it's been injured by chronic stress. Um, yeah. And and so, you know, I really wanted that to be the answer for the fentanyl as well for lots of reasons. Um, but instead we found a sort of network of completely different molecules mm -hmm. um, and they were a little bit different between males and females. Mm. And, um, you know, we don't do a great job of making female specific and male specific drugs. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we looked for basically common transcriptional regulators of these like networks of dendritic morphology genes. Um, and so we, we found a, a transcription factor E2F1 um, and, and we're able to manipulate expression of that to sort of prevent the, the damage caused by fentanyl abstinence. Great. Is there um, a drug out there to uh, manipulate E2F1's activity in any way or not? Not yet. <laughs> not, not yet. And one of the problems um, with, with this is so we would need something that's like exclusively centrally acting mm. uh, because E2F1 like is super important for cell cycle. Mm -hmm. uh, which is why it's so weird that that's the target that we found in post-mitotic neurons. Like yeah. no one really understands how E2F1 completely or the E2F transcription factor family in general sort of works in post-mitotic neurons. Right. Um, and like maybe it's not in the nucleus, maybe it's in the cytoplasm. And um, I'm sure the reviewers of my last paper would have loved for me to, to answer that definitively. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's uh, that's something that will hopefully solve um, in the in the coming years. Exactly. It's ongoing work. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Cool. No, I I know it's um those those things are always frustrating to me. Um or I guess, you know, exciting too. Like these 
genes or these proteins that are said like, yeah, it does this in, in, you know, cancer or this in another kind of tissue. Um, so it is called like, it is that name or it is under that category of biological processes. And they're like, but that's not maybe relevant at all to what it's doing in the brain or in even just a different region in the brain. Uh, so it's, you know, it makes uh, neuroscience that much more complicated, but exciting. <laughs> yes. Whenever I talk to, um, to, uh, to like biomedical science PhD students and they tell me they're interested in cancer. I'm mm -hmm. like, well, you actually are kind of contributing to neuroscience research yeah. as well. And you don't know it <laughs> yep, because exactly. all of our molecules that, that come up with, with a dendritic complexity and you know, spinogenesis and <laughs> all of that stuff. Uh, it feels like they were all discovered in cancer first. Totally. Totally. <laughs> and, and, and they, they always, they always roll their eyes at me. <laughs> So funny. <laughs> cool. So you right. So um, you kind of identified these new molecules uh, that are contributing to um, kind of stress and uh, kind of stress states and maybe um, kind of drug addiction, drug seeking states um, in your postdoc work. And then you, you know, transitioned into a PI um, and moved to uh, Penn State. I guess what was what was that process like, you know, moving from postdoc to PI and then starting to establish what, what you took with you and what you kind of decided to start in your new lab? Sure. Um, so I feel like there's there's a cohort of us who all started our faculty positions at the same time uh, in this weird COVID era. Yeah. Um, so when I was going on the job market, um, everyone hired was in a hiring freeze, um, and I like knew people who were having their offers rescinded, and so it was a it was a stressful time yeah. um, <laughs> to say the least. Um, but you know, I did, I did. Um, I'm, I'm very happy with, with where I ended up. Um, it's a really good fit for sort of my priorities um, and sort of what I'm interested in doing. And so uh, we're in the, the anesthesiology department, which is where all the pain clinic patients are. Yeah. And so hopefully um, we can sort of in our preclinical stuff, hopefully identify some sort of biomarker uh, that can that can be found in the blood. You know, maybe we have these pain clinic patients. Um, I've had a lot of conversations with people who do um, anesthesia and pain management in the context of like labor and delivery mm -hmm. and sort of the, the prenatal effects of, of drugs. Um, and so it's been a really, it's been a really great cool environment intellectually stimulating to sort of yeah. think because I'm in a clinical department I talk to clinicians and I see what they're working on um, and it helps inform sort of, yeah. some of what we're doing um but you asked me what I took with me and how I decided what to take with me um so at the end of my postdoc I started doing um, drug self-administration work um, and so because I had all this evidence and, and molecular mechanisms of fentanyl, like that's what I started with first. Um, and so I, you know, I took fentanyl self-administration with me um, 
And so in, in my postdoc, I spent a lot of time looking at nucleus accumbens, neurons, um, but I really wanted to be able to kind of marry my postdoc interests with my graduate school interests. Um, and so I, I went back to the ventral tegmental area, the sort of source of, of the dopamine that goes to the nucleus accumbens um, so that, you know, it's really important to differentiate yourself mm -hmm. from your, your mentors. Like you don't want to be accidentally competing with each yeah. other. And I certainly don't want to step on, on toes of like postdocs who were working <laughs> in that lab. Um, and so it was really important for me to like move a brain region away, move yeah. the synapse away and be able to look at it from, from a different perspective basically. And so like we're looking at these molecular adaptations in the VTA um, and also in those specifically receiving input from the nucleus accumbens, we have this sort of loop where VTA projects to accumbens, accumbens projects to VTA. And so what we're sort of hoping to show is this like feed forward loop of well, VTA dopamine to accumbens, accumbens GABA to VTA, and, and sort of this hijacking, spiraling, uh, you know, snowball rolling down a hill, getting bigger sort mm -hmm. of thing uh, in, in the context of, of substance use. Um, I, you know, I don't have the data that says that that's definitely how it is right now. Right, right. Uh, yeah. But, but you know, we're, we're definitely working on it. And um, it's really exciting to be able to, to combine uh, things like RNA sequencing with then like self-administration behavior and then like do voltammetry and look at dopamine release and, and see like what what is happening at, at the smallest scale and the largest scale. Yeah, yeah. No, that's super exciting. I uh, can't wait to see what you guys find. Um, I guess, right, as um, as you you just hit your one-year lab anniversary. Congratulations. Yes. Thank you. We did it. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Um, and uh, I guess, are there any kind of things that you can give us advice or that you're kind of reflecting on as looking back as you started in those initial months um, or that you're kind of deciding to do now um, with that year under your belt uh, that you can give to our audience? Yeah. Um, so I'm a very impatient person. I want everything <laughs> done yesterday. And uh, that is not reality. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm having to learn to, to be patient. Um, it's also, it's been really challenging when you first start out because you are, you are every role in your lab. Mm -hmm. You are not just the PI. You are also the postdoc. You are also the grad student. You are also the technician. Um, and it is, it's mentally a lot to mm -hmm. sort of flip those hats on and off. Um, but like there is, there is hope. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's important to get, it's important to get uh, a person to hire a person who's really excited mm -hmm. about learning stuff. Um, and so, like, that's one of the challenges that I found is that, uh, like people with bachelor's degrees who were looking for technician positions, um, a lot of them were in undergrad during COVID yeah. and they had like labs on zoom. 
Yeah. And so like adjusting your expectations for the kind of hands-on skills that people might have. Yeah. Was a, was a big thing for me. And I like, I'm always trying to reframe it as well, at least they don't know how to do this incorrectly. At least I don't have to, to undo bad training. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, the, the other thing that I can sort of impart is that not everybody is you like, Mm. (laughs) there's a lot of, uh, a lot of different ways of of working and thinking and organizing and I I feel like as we progress through our careers you know our way of doing things becomes very solidified it's like this is the way it will go Uh, this is the order in which we will do this and um, and that's one of the reasons why it's so important to have so many uh, diverse perspectives to help (laughs) To help you figure out that there's actually more than one way to to do things yeah so just being flexible with with your thinking and your timelines has been the the key i think i mean i, I still to be honest I, I feel like i'm drowning uh <laughs> at least two days out of the week <laughs> now um, it sounds like that's normal for new PIs and maybe just maybe all PIs. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It is getting a little bit easier. Yeah. Um, but it's not, it's certainly not as, um, as smooth, as smooth sailing as I was expecting it to be. Yeah. Just so like, especially because of COVID. Um, so we got hit really early on in this year. Um, so the, the primary technician in the lab got really sick and was out mm. for a while. And so like we missed out on training time. Right. Basically. Um, and, it, you know, they want to come back to work. It's like, uh, yeah. you know, you're making these decisions about people's health that you never wanted to make. Like I never wanted to be responsible for deciding like people's individual level of risk. Yeah. And like yesterday they just announced that the, um, the college of medicine, like masking is optional now, Mm. which I hate because now I have to put my foot down. Yeah. Like, sorry, we're going to steep. We're going to keep masking in the lab. Like, I'm, I'm sorry. Like I, I got hit really bad with, with COVID, um, in, in May and was out for a long time. And that was really tough because, you know, people had only had a few months of training. And so it's like FaceTiming from my bed, like, (laughs) no, no, (laughs) hook this cable up here, (laughs) cough, cough, (laughs) no, no. (laughs) Um, But, you know, we, we survived. Yeah. We we made it through and I'm really impressed by, um, by, by their resilience. Oh, that's great to hear. Yeah. Uh, well, um, I guess that kind of leads me to my last question um, of, um, so speaking of resilience, what are kind of things that you do to kind of uh, defend yourself against lab stresses by uh, enjoying things outside of lab? Um, so I have a lot of things that I love to do that I don't often devote the time that I would mm-hmm. like to. Um, so 
I have been a musician for pretty much as long as I can remember. I started playing oh, wow. piano when I was four. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and uh, and been a percussionist since I was about 11. Wow. And so now that I'm not living in a 500 square foot apartment, <laughs> uh, now that I live in my little ranch house, week, uh, <gasps> I have a piano and I have a drum set and it's, it's great. I, uh, I, I is a really enriching part of my life for a long time that I felt like had to go on the back burner because of science. Mm -hmm. um, in an alternate reality, I would have been a musician, not a scientist. Wow. Um, so in this timeline, <laughs> Uh, you know, we get to bring the music back in, which is, which is really nice and really therapeutic. There's sort of yeah. a headspace that you get into that I can't get into with anything else. Um, yeah. But aside from that, um, I really love like coffee shops and craft brew places. Um, mm -hmm. I love craft beer. And so I love to, um, that's something I really miss from the before times yeah. is getting to travel somewhere and go to all the coffee shops and go to all the craft breweries and just sit down, have your beverage and watch people in the world. Mm -hmm. um, it's a, it's a really, I, I miss, I miss doing that a lot. Um, yeah. I, I do have some, some, some places that I consider safe to visit at least now, like while the weather is nice, I have a lot of outdoor space and, and such. Good. But no. those are the those are the the main ones. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. Great. Uh, well, on that note, we'll end. And I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time. <laughs>